Right, all right. It's Real Life, Real Equity with your hosts, Justin and Keisha Brooks. Welcome to the show. Our goal is to share with you real life examples of entrepreneurs showing in both life and business. As real estate investors, our mission is to model, educate, and inspire you to act by sharing easy to implement tools, ideas, and information to add more worth to your net worth, more cash to your cash flow, helping you achieve your goals in less time. That's right. Since we have grown with real life, real equity, we have learned from our listening audience and our guests that entrepreneurship is full of trials, tribulations, and resilience. With that being said, we are going to email all of our listeners a free copy of the book, Resilience, Turning Your Setback Into a Comeback. This book is full of powerful testimonies from unstoppable super achievers sharing their stories of resilience. With it being endorsed by Brian Tracy and Tom Ziegler, the entrepreneurs, NFL players, speakers, and authors in the book will share with you their firsthand accounts of how resilience put them on the path to success. It's simple. Send us an email to resilience at realliferoequity.com. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Real Life Real Equity. And so we have a great one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a founder and CEO of Become Investment Group. He grew up in Orange County, California and started in real estate back in 2010 while he was working as an electrical engineer. He left his corporate job five years ago to focus on building his real estate company. He and his partners own a three-figure portfolio of rental properties nationwide. He's been featured on top real estate podcasts and radio shows with millions of downloads. He and his team have developed a unique system to be able to find and reposition undervalued portfolios of single family rental homes and effectively manage them like apartment complexes. By doing so, they've not only successfully repositioned challenging properties, but have also transformed entire neighborhoods. The end result, making communities safer, cleaner, more desirable, and still affordable. With nearly a decade of investing experience, they have a proven track record of the resiliency to help their investors protect and grow their investments despite the challenges that arise from the properties. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm round of applause and welcome our guest today, Sep Bacom. Welcome to the show. Hey, morning. How are you, Justin and Keisha? Good, good. Good. We are super excited to have you today, man. It's been a long time coming. Excited to be here. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us an idea of who you are so that those of our audience members who don't know who you are can learn a little bit about you. Yeah. So I grew up in Orange County, California, and I really didn't really have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. I was very much raised under that traditional poor dad mindset that Kiyosaki talks about in his books about go to school, get good grades, get a job and don't take too much risks. So everything else was just kind of learned along the way from real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and just investing in itself. I'm kind of a a proof of that, that it can be learned skill, even if we're naturally not like that A-type, outgoing, Elon Musk or or Steve Jobs type, that there's, there's still problems in the world and our job as entrepreneurs is go solve them. Couldn't agree more. What inspired you to be an entrepreneur? I mean, kind of give us an idea of that. Where did that come from? So back in 2009, I was, I was working a, a full-time job as an electrical engineer and I was going to school part-time for my master's degree and I, I, I was burnt out. Like I'd, I'd work 40 hours at the job. It'd take me two hours a day in traffic to get there and back. So I'm over in Los Angeles and right. it's a cliche for Californians to complain about traffic, but I do have to put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just, I just, I just felt like I was on the treadmill and just 
kept trading time for money and I didn't really think that there was another way out. I thought that the only way was you got to add more degrees and you got to ask your boss for a raise and live below your means, just kind of do the, what we're traditionally taught. Right. It was kind of by chance. I'd seen a friend after a couple of years and uh, she asked me what I was up to. And I just told her, you know, I got the degree and I'm working, but I just don't feel fulfilled. I, I don't feel like I'm meeting my goals. And if anything, I'm actually having to cross off my goals on my list because when I see how much money I actually take home after taxes and all the, the government's cut, it's really hard, especially if you're living in a high cost uh, housing state. So she just kind of started talking to me about kind of a big picture view on purchasing power because I, I was complaining about my income and right. uh, she recommended a book by Robert Kiyosaki called Conspiracy of the Rich. I know a lot of people start off with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I, I start off with one of his later books. And one of the things that she told me that really opened up my eyes was when she said that, Seth, did you know that the Federal Reserve is not federal or reserve? And it was wow. like a push to the gut because, I mean, you, you know, we, we got a chance to spend time with G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, who is a big influence on that book, Conspiracy of the Rich. But when she told me that, I just kind of pause and think about it. And I was like, this is crazy talk. That was the first thing that came to my mind. And she told me, well, pull out a bill from your wallet and, you know, dollar bill 20 or one or five and just look at it. And on the top of it, it says Federal Reserve note. I'm like, well, I didn't get the memo for that. I didn't learn about that in my economics classes or civics classes. I just thought, well, Federal Reserve is part of the government and they have Fort Knox. Right. And I'm sure most people just would have assumed that, right? It's marketing. It says it in the name. <laughs> right. I agree. Yep. So she challenged me to go read that book. I read the book. Before reading Conspiracy of the Rich, I felt like I was plugged into the matrix. And wow. after reading it, it was like getting unplugged because I realized that if I keep going on this trajectory, just trading time for money and understanding what the Federal Reserve is and understanding what happens to the purchasing power of currency over time, that it's not a really good long-term strategy. And taking a step further, the purchasing power for every currency and every nation in history always goes down over time because governments are really good and not to get political, but they're really good spending money and they mm -hmm. do that either with taxes or through inflation and taxes, at least it's a little bit more known, but inflation is, is a detriment if you're not hedging against inflation. Right. Right. So, right. So that, that book kind of showed that real estate investing is a good hedge against inflation that if, if I'm just trading my time for money in my job, that, you know, that purchasing power goes down. I'm sure you guys have seen some of those, uh, the cost of living mm -hmm. charts yep. from like 19, 1930s, 1970s. You could buy a house for like, you know, $3,000, $4,000. And nowadays you can't mm -hmm. even buy the windows for the house. So what, what right. happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the book goes into a lot more detail on that. It, it just kind of showed that if we, instead of investing in Wall Street and, and savings account, living below our means, if instead we invest for hedges against inflation. What that means is, you know, commodities, items that actually hold their value over time. You know, the, the house, it's very different than a stock because the house actually gets more expensive to make over time, right? Like there's labor right. that goes into it. There's copper that goes into the, the wiring and the walls. There's, you know, oil that goes into the tar to make the roof, the glass. All of those are basically like a, a collection of commodities in, in each house or each apartment building or assisted living facility, wherever it is. So I, right, right. that kind of got me motivated to just be a collector of that and, and focus more on that than focus on making the company I was working for rich. Yeah. Wow. So for our audience members who did not catch that conspiracy of the rich by Robert Kiyosaki, that's the first book he read. And then, you know, he referenced another book in there that we've mentioned before, uh, rich dad, poor dad. So 
If you haven't read those two books, Sepp is a, a well of knowledge. And if you couldn't tell that already, he's a student of learning about economics, real estate, and investing. And so, you know, one of our good friends, Robert Helms, talks about before you're a real estate investor, you're an investor first. And so you have to learn about what it is that you're going to do. Anyway. Yes. So why real estate? You know, so many people, when they start entrepreneurship, you know, they pick many things. So why real estate for you? Well, I had always, like even before reading the book, I knew that real estate was, was a good vehicle to help people become successful and less dependent on money and, and less worried about money over time. Even in my own family, like extended relatives, I, I just saw over time, ever since I was a kid, those that had the rental properties ended up being less stressed out than those who just were dependent on a job after decades. But before reading that book, I was just under the impression that real estate always required 20% down and a bank's approval. So mm, yeah. after reading the book, I got the bug and I still thought that I was limited to my own money. I didn't get the passion for really deep diving into it until I attended that first uh, syndication seminar with the real estate guys. It's actually called The Secrets of Successful Syndication. That's and right. That's where we met at the first time years yeah. ago. I yeah. met a lot, of, a lot of amazing people through there. But that seminar really just showed me that I could help people get out of Wall Street and invest into Main Street. So it really expanded my mission because instead of it being about me getting myself out of the rat race and me collecting properties, I realized that I, I could do a lot more and, and I enjoyed it more when I when I approach it about, okay, now I, this is a tool for, like syndication is basically a tool for me to help other people um, get out of Wall Street. And, and instead of doing like a couple of deals, these smaller deals, we can do bigger deals and make a bigger impact in, in the asset classes that we're investing in. So um, it, it's, yeah. it's also like an unlimited funding source because then I, I'm not at the mercy of a bank telling me that, nope, you, you just did a loan last month. We can't, we can't give you a loan for this new property you know, you, you don't have enough down payment, then it becomes more about the, the team and the deal in itself. So right. that, that's kind of where it gradually led me on to the syndication route. So, you know, real estate is such a broad category. And so um, a lot of people, when they think of real estate, many people, even with us, they say, oh, so you guys flip. And it's <laughs> like, well, no. So you're saying syndication, explain to the audience exactly what that is. Sure. So, that, and that's, that's what I thought real estate investing was originally too, is I thought it's about fix and flip or, or even wholesaling. And in, in the end of the day, that, that ends up being like a job, right? And right. It's, it's because we're, we're, we're using our time to go find deals and then we improve the deal or we flip it to someone else and then we sell it. So at the end of the day, we have more currency in our pocket, right? But we know over time that currency loses its purchasing power. It's not going to buy, like, you know, $100 doesn't buy what it does today as it did 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, right? right. Um, and when we look at it from like a buy and hold perspective, it's more about like having that, that stream of income come in every month. And then syndication makes it so that we can do it in teams, basically. W one of the things, like even after attending that syndication seminar, I, I got the bug, I got all excited and I was like, great, this is amazing. And I thought everyone else wanted to become a syndicator because I, I just saw the potential out of it. Right. And the reality is most people don't, right? <laughs> most people don't. <laughs> yep want to go and travel and, and deal with the muck and sift through deals and manage property managers and deal with the headaches. Most people just want the benefit of real estate investing and, and they're willing to invest their, their capital in that for a return. And, and for those who are willing to go and actually do the work, 
there, it's basically mutually beneficial. So it could benefit everyone. So that, that's my passion is I, I, for me, I, I would just get too antsy and, and bored if I was just passive, but uh, to each their own. So I, I, right. I love working with those, those people that, that don't necessarily, you know, want to be the captain of this ship and are, are okay with uh, just going along for the journey. Right. So you said something that I think is really key and I want to make sure that we highlight that. You said some people don't want to go travel, sift through the deals. And then you said something that's really, really key that a lot of people do not get a hold of. You said, and manage the property managers. You didn't say manage the property. You didn't say be a property manager. You said manage the property manager. So when we said define syndication, you went into it and I understand it, but I want you to like give it to us from a kindergarten perspective, because what you said is exactly the definition but it still may be something that's a little bit higher level because when you say manage your property managers, man, you, you hit it on the head. Well, and it's, <laughs> I'm a bit militant when it comes to that perspective. I know some investors are more of the mindset of, oh, well, you know, so I, I have people even to this day telling me, it's like, oh, you, you can't control your property manager, especially if you're out of state. How are you going to know? How are you going to, I mean, do you have to fly out there all the time? And there's, you know, they, they, everyone always has an uncle that bought one property and they lost money and then that <laughs> yeah. uncle entire family and it kind of poisons the well. Instead yeah. of asking, I think a better question or a smarter question is how can you manage your property manager? Mm. And, and wow. I don't ask those uncles, you know, or, or those people who basically have had one failure and they gave up after that. I don't ask them for advice. I, I want to hear their, their opinion, but I, I'll go ask someone who, who's got like, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 apartments out of state and is, who's doing it, I'll, I'll ask them how they're doing it. More often than not, they're more than happy to, to share that. We're even talking with other investors like yourselves and, and the, the networking groups. So asking how really gets us into that, that journey to find out how it's done. And um, I think that's a better approach to do it from the get-go because if, you're, if you learn how to manage your property manager, then you can literally go into any market and you're not necessarily tied to a market where it's basically you having to manage them or it's you have to, you know, put the hours in for your, your um, onsite manager or the leasing agent, whatever it is. So right. I feel like you can be more of an agnostic investor and, right. and enter and leave a market as need be as, you know, as the conditions changed. And it really depends on the asset class because I know some assets like mobile home parks or even assisted living facilities, there's not really like these large, property management companies available for that. It's a little more niche and it could be built up, but for single family, for multifamily, I and mean, there's property managers all day long. And I, I feel like that's definitely a skill that's worth learning. Absolutely, man. And you hit it on the head again. I mean, you said that sometimes they're more niche, but for our audience, we're talking about residential real estate. We're talking about single family homes. He's figured out a niche where he can literally change blocks of homes at a time. And I want to go into something that our audience needs to understand that you, you can explain to them because I know your story. You know, we've talked, you know, for hours on end about what it means to be the manager of a property manager. Right. You had a very interesting experience on your first couple of deals, which allowed you to really learn how to manage a property manager. Tell us about that. Sure. So that reminds me on the podcast that I get asked to speak on, I never get invited to speak on a turnkey podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's because it's, in my opinion, it's kind of like a dog and pony show is with turnkey properties. And and I have friends that are turnkey providers and I I tell them this too, but turnkey, a lot of them, not all of them, but most of them do try to make it seem like real estate investing is turnkey, that property is turnkey but the property manager is turnkey. 
that the tenant is turnkey and and maybe there's a turnkey property but there's no such thing as a turnkey tenant and yeah and you're right be, about that yeah and then maybe that's more common in like a class if it's a apartment in beverly hills or if you're doing like level five alf but uh for for rental properties for b and c class or even d I mean, those tenants, they don't, they don't necessarily treat the properties like it's their own. So just because the property looks good when you buy it and the turnkey provider says that it's turnkey doesn't mean it's going to be that way when they move out. And, and I learned that the hard way. So <laughs> when, yeah, the, before I, I started syndicating, I was just buying properties on my own accord. I was, I was investing out of state and I bought two fourplexes over in Phoenix and I, I was expecting, cause I bought it on pro forma and for any of your Whoa. listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically what. Uh, it's basically a lie. So if you ever see <laughs> projections, don't believe it. You, you got to do your own research, ask the property manager and, and calculate your own income and expenses, but ask the seller for the actual income expenses. Um, a lot of times they'll just kind of give these wild projections, assuming like a very low, low vacancy, underestimated maintenance and returns. And, and the danger for new investors, if they believe that and, and they go buy the property, the reality would be higher vacancy, higher maintenance and repair costs, lower cash flow, or even negative cash flow, like what happened to me. So wow. um, it was kind of a wake-up wow. call, going, going into something, thinking it's going to cash flow, then spending two years just trying to get it to, to break even. And it was going through management company after management company. And, and along the way, I realized that there's different teams for different properties. And, and I thought I was buying C-class properties, and I ended up buying D as in Delaware, and I had a, oh, an wow. a and, yeah, A and B property manager who didn't understand how to communicate with my tenants. And it's not that the tenants spoke, you know, they spoke English, but they, the A class property manager does not understand how to speak to C class tenant or D class tenant. Right. They're, mm, they're used to tenants yeah. probably paying on, you know, auto pay instead of having to go and uh, do like a, a cashier's check or whatever it be. So, or knock on their door. No, no, <laughs> we're not going to <laughs> with a bulletproof vest. <laughs> so it, it, it was a wake up call. And, and again, this, it doesn't get talked about because if I think if, if investors knew that they wouldn't be so uh, eager to get into a lot of turnkey properties and, and, and disclosure, I mean, some of my property managers are turnkey providers and I, I have recommended them. And it's because first and foremost, they're good property management companies and then they're uh, good turnkey providers. So it's, they, they provide good inventory, but they know how to manage it. Wow. Uh, now that's good. Important. You just, you hit the nail on the head there. That's another one. Uh, if y'all are listening, they're good property managers first, and then they're turnkey providers. Right. That's, that's another one. Now you, you almost went there, but I want to go there. I really want you to talk <laughs> about like the lows. Cause I mean, we hear you're a smart guy. I mean, you, that's why we were friends, not because you're smart, but because, you know, iron sharpens iron, right? right? And you always bring a level of thinking that sometimes I don't think about. And, you know, that's what they say. You know, you hang around smart people and you get smarter. You know, you got to be uncomfortable with not being the smartest guy in the room. And so I'm saying all this to say, you highlighted very well, you know what you're doing. You've been through it. You've had the highs. But let's talk about the lows because a lot of people are going to get into this and listen to this podcast for the first, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and say, oh my God, there's no way I could get there. Talk about your first mm -hmm. deal. Talk about the news because I know you've been on the news. Talk about all those things that you don't normally get the perspective of on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, early on, 
just because I didn't have the experience, I didn't have like a, a peer group or mentors to, to really go to kind of understand like w- what it is that was beneath the rock. I, I just thought that real estate investing, like as long as you got a property manager, that everything's going to be okay. Even after I bought the first two properties, it, it literally, it took about two and a half to three years just to get $1 of cash flow because I kept having to put money into the properties every month because, wow. you know, the property we rented for $500, like uh, an apartment unit, and then the tenant moves out and it costs that much just to replace the carpet. And then it costs $2,000 to repaint the interior. Then it costs probably another $300 to get the bleach out of the, uh, wh- wherever they put it all over the, the unit <laughs> wow. and all that. So all those, all those extra costs on there that didn't, uh, I didn't project on it. So undercapitalizing, not knowing how to underwrite the deal property, that was definitely a painful lesson. And that's just on the financials of the property, but not even understanding the, the tenants, the demographics, and not having an understanding for the type of team that would need in place. I had to learn it the hard way too. So you mentioned the news. We've actually been on the news a couple times over the years. So we've had... Now define we, because I don't want... it. Sepp has not been on the news, but <laughs> you'll hear what he means. <laughs> when I, yeah, when I say that, so it's, it's you know, our, our, our properties that, that <laughs> we've invested in. So most of the time that that happens, and I'd say it's about 90% of the time that a property is on the news, it's because of a relic from the past, basically. It's, it's one of the tenants that we inherited from a, a seller that was there on the property beforehand. It was a tenant that we did not screen or that we did not look at their criminal background or look at their financial wherewithal to see that they can cover the rent and not have to pay for it from selling drugs on the street. Right. And so, right. so some, some investors, you know, you know they, they call that a lease audit, and I didn't know that early on. When there was one incident where, actually a couple of incidents, so yeah, we've had like th- Three, I think four drive-by shootings. We've had properties oh with prostitutes, meth labs, gangs. We had a we had an incident where a maintenance guy from a property was almost killed by a tenant that tried to throw a brick on him from the second story. Death threats to the Jesus. on-site manager where she had to carry concealed weapon with her every time she go to the leasing office. So it was it was crazy. Mm-hmm. These were primarily on the multifamilies at the beginning and a couple of single families later on. So. Wow. Like, yeah, nightmares, right? And yeah. and it's kind of like you burn your hand on the stove. And most of the time when people burn their hand on the stove, they're like, okay, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to invest in low-income housing. For me, I kept burning my hand on the stove. But, um, You're testing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, You're like, I wasn't sure the first that, time. Let me try again. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the reality, yeah, it was, it was the latter. I was, I, it just kept, kept trying. It's like, okay, that didn't work. What's sticking? What, what works? And over time, it ended up becoming easier basically like the first time you have an eviction it's very hard because you don't expect it but then w- once you've had a couple or a couple dozen then you, you kind of you can project it and you can find ways to prevent that from happening there's like strategies like cash for keys to to make it so that the eviction is not as painful but um burning the hand on the stone that that kind of changed my investor identity because earlier on i wanted to be easy and passive investing. And as we were going through these, these challenges with the properties and fixing them and getting the right team on board and actually getting the bad apples out, the bad tenants out, putting good tenants in and seeing the properties start to change, that made it very gratifying. That for me made it all worth it. It's like, okay, even with all of the, the difficulty that was involved, seeing the end result makes it worth it. Wow. So let's go do it again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, that is so good. I mean, so it sounds like just to clarify for the audience is you have to, one, make sure you have the right team in place and also screen your team, you know, figure out who you you want to represent in the team, exactly what their role is. And then also 
having the right systems in place is so important. That is huge. That is like a big thing and even just tweaking the system as you go. So you gave us the low. What was your best deal? So the best deal ended up being one of the worst deals at, at the beginning. It was a deal that there was a point where um, it was hemorrhaging. Like it was uh, the, the total expenses per month were, I mean, the mortgage was about 10500 per month. That didn't oh, wow. count payroll. It didn't count. Um, it, it was an apartment complex. It didn't count any of the utility bills. It didn't count. And it was, I mean, there was just a whole like range of difficulties with that. Like there was, there was one water meter for the entire complex and one of the tenants oh. was, uh, was behind six months on rent. There's another story behind that, but six months of rent and just, he would just leave his faucet on in the bathtub all day long for six months. So we thought oh, that goodness. the property was always supposed to be having a $2,000 a month water bill. When we got him out of there, we saw the water bill go down from $2,000 to $500. So, wow. Oh, wow. It's, it's, and that, that affects the NOI, right? Right. So that was the deal where it, after I, bought it and I would talk to brokers in the area. Uh, I didn't tell them the address at, at the beginning. It wasn't that I was hiding it, but you know, I was, I was having a coffee meeting. I remember one time, this is in San Antonio and the broker that I was talking to, I, I asked, I was like, Hey, I was with my, my partner at the time. I was like, Hey, uh, where, where are the opportunities in, in this market? And she said, well, this, this area, she, she got a piece of paper was, uh, and, and she drew like the, the main street. She's like, this is the area where there's a lot of growth. And then she drew a line and she's like, this is the area, this is the worst part of town. Don't buy anything over there. And then right behind that line is the property where I bought that I was, I was talking about earlier. Oh, wow. So it's, it's not really helpful knowing that after you buy the deal, right? Right, right, uh, right. right. At the same time, it's like the, the best, uh, generally over time, I think it was Simon Black who said that, like over time, the deals that end up being the best deals are the ones that nobody wants. Because if they look nice and pretty, everyone's going to buy it. But if it's got hair, if it's got challenges, if it's if it looks like it's you got way too much work involved, and you know you buy it right, and you have the right team on board, then it can end up being a really good deal. So one of the highs that that fifty eight unit complex, we bought it for about one point three million, and we sold it for about three point three million uh, last month, and that that was over a six, I think it was about six year, six and a half year hold, and we refinanced it twice during that time, pulled out all the equity. So even even when we had it, even after all those challenges, it became kind of like an infinite return because we wow. did the refi and then we got all of our principal, all of our initial investment out and the property was still cash flowing and you know, we still had the, the mortgage on there. We ended up selling just because the cap rates ended up becoming too low and that, that's part of the, one of the reasons why we haven't really been doing multifamily anymore. It's just, it doesn't make sense for us to, to buy those types of deals anymore. Right. Wow. And you, you unloaded a lot and we can go on and on and on about, you know, just the, the strategy side of it. But if you want to learn more, you obviously have to get educated. And if you want to invest in real estate, you have to learn about what it is. You mentioned NOI and lowering your expenses and cap rates, all these terms. And maybe we'll do a show on that someday uh, where, you know, these are the things that you have to learn in order to get into real estate. You don't have to know everything now. Because one of the things that we learn from, again, the real estate guys, like at the Secrets of Successful Syndication is you can partner with people where you're weak. And that's one of the things that's very powerful. So with that, we want to transition a little bit. Give us three things that our audience can take action on right now. Valuable information, things that they may not know that they don't know. Well, the first would be uh, one of my favorite quotes from Jim Rohn, and it's that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So I, I have the privilege of spending time with you guys um, every, I think it's like every month or every other month at, at two different masterminds. 
And what I see, it's like when I see entrepreneurs kind of hit that glass ceiling, it's, it's because they're very motivated, but then the people they spend the most time with are more into just having fun and not really reading books or listening to podcasts or going to events. Right. And like it or not, you know, the people you spend the most time with, those five people are putting ideas into your head. And if they're putting ideas like, Hey, are we going to watch Game of Thrones this weekend? Uh, Are we going to binge watch this Netflix (laughs) over and over and over and over again? Or are they putting ideas into, hey, have you read this book? Have you heard about this deal? You want to go to this conference or this seminar or whatever it is? It's very different. And for me, that was the the biggest shift, I think, in in the last like 10 years, just changing that that, uh, peer group. And um, not, not that you don't love those people you spend time with, but just you spend, like Robert Helms says at the Goals Retreat, right? Like you spend less time with those who are not really helping you get towards your goals. And you spend more time with the people who are, who encourage you, who are there, who are you're your backbone, who give you ideas, who challenge you and not just want to see you stay, stay complacent. And, and that also fits in with the second item is that when it comes to the, the masterminds, the coaching, the seminars, you get what you pay for because the, the free seminars at the local RIAs, there's there's a caliber of investor that goes there and oftentimes it's newbies which which is fine you know it's a good way to learn but it's it's very different than like the mastermind where people are spending a thousand dollars or or five thousand dollars or ten or twenty or a hundred thousand dollars because if if they can write that check it means that they've got the financial wherewithal and they've you know they've got to a point in their business and the careers to to be able to do that they see value from it and they know that if they write that check they need to see an roi off one of my favorite quotes from from Ray Charles's uh, movie with uh, Jamie Foxx. I think it was Ray Charles's mentor who's, who told them that if you focus on pennies, you get pennies. If you count dollars, you get dollars. So wow. then the third thing I think is really important is having a mission statement. And uh, you and I, we've had chance to spend time with Kiyosaki on, on the cruise and at the, at the summit at sea with the real estate guys. And at this last summer at sea, one of the things that Kiyosaki mentioned, I think it was during uh, lunch or dinner was that, it, it, how important it is for investors to basically have a purpose. Like, and one of his pet peeves is when he see entrepreneurs only care about the money. If it's just about the money, that's not something we can get a team behind you. Like I want to make money. Who cares? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. That doesn't, that's not something that's, that's something that people want to rally behind. If, if you have a mission about, I'm going to go get people out of wall street. I'm going to go help people retire. I want to go and help people invest in communities that are being neglected and let's profit on it together. Uh, th- those are something, th- those are things that are, that are bigger. And uh, I, I feel like that, that identity, that mission statement is something that every investor should have, even before they're looking for deals, even before they're talking to property managers, who is it that you want to serve? You know, real estate investing is a lot of fun, but you know, there's so many different asset classes, but the more clear we can get on that, I feel like the, the more fun it is, the more likely we're going to stick with it, even when uh, things get challenging. Wow. You hit it on the head again. I mean, uh, wow. The three things again were the people, the events, and then the mission. And it's really interesting that Keisha and I were just talking about the people you hang out with. And so there's two things that I want to hit on. One, the people, and then I want to talk about the events. The five people you hang around most, this includes your job. And I think a lot of people overlook that. And I overlooked it for so long because it was actually something that somebody said to me that was totally unrelated to hanging out with, you know, the five people that influence you most. But they said, you spend a 30 year life at a job, if you really think about it. Almost a 30 year life is spent eight hours a day at some nine to five job, if that's what you do. If you're an entrepreneur, it's a little different. But it's very interesting. If a third of your perspective is coming from 
your job, the people at your job are having an influence on how you think. And that's really important to, to be aware of. So if those people aren't getting you to where you want to go, if your mission is to be a real estate investor, but you're working at a job that's totally opposite of that, you probably need to make a shift or a transition to be around more people who are doing that. So that was the one thing. And then the other thing is I'm real big on um, talking about events and being able to start where you are. So don't get intimidated by going to an event that costs you a thousand dollars or $50,000. Or, you know, we said, don't go to a free event, but uh, you know, don't, uh, but, and spend money on a good event. That's not the point. The point isn't, to just go to an event that you have to spend money on. The point is to be resourceful with what you have because a lot of the guys who have these really expensive events, I was reminded of this this morning. If you just go and ask, a lot of times they have a way to help you get in the room, right? I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something I overlooked. That's absolutely true. It's, it's to go into those events intentionally. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that because it's one thing to go to the events and just be passive and just listen. But if you can go to the events, even if it's at the free events, uh, and I've, I've met investors and partners from even the free seminars too, but I, I, there's, there's a higher caliber at, at the, you know, when, you, when you're in the room with the big boys, basically. But if you go right. in there, regardless of where you're at, but go in with the mantra of how can I help the other person and right. not go in with what, how can I sell? Right. Uh, a lot of doors, doors do open up. And, and yeah, even if you ask, uh, most people at those types of events are willing to help. If right. you know, there's pain and they have a solution, why, why would they not help? Right. And, and that's, the, that's the point. We're not saying that uh, all free events are bad. And I don't necessarily go to very many free events because, you know, if it's free, it's free for a reason. But what yeah. we are saying is be resourceful when you, if you do go there, be resourceful when you get there. Because a lot of things that are free in the beginning cost you much, much more at the end. Um, and Keisha and I have had some really interesting, and I say interesting because it was not very fun uh, in a in a very bad way, uh, experiences yeah. going to free events. Um, and it's, you know, we thought, oh, we're going to get in this thing and, you know, get a free lunch. Well, there's no such thing as a free yeah. lunch. So, <laughs> uh, you know, anyway. So we've learned a lot today and that it's just been so many nuggets that have been dropped. If people have more questions, What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, they can check out the website. It's becominvestmentgroup.com, just my last name, or they can send me an email at sep at becominvest.com and uh, be happy to help. Before we get into the one golden nugget that you want to give away, you know, that you want to help our audience with to really, if there's one thing that you can think of, it's going to only be really one thing that's going to be the number one thing to get people started. But before we do that, we want to make sure that we do something. You were so generous to give away a free gift to our audience. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So when, when I made those mistakes earlier on with the, the property management companies, I, I would only ask them three questions. I would ask them, what do you charge? What's your management fee? What do you think about the property? And when do you start? So whichever property management company was cheapest and was available to start the soonest, I would hire. But then the, the problem was I would hire the wrong property management company for the property. I, there would be that misalignment and misalignment means negative cash flow, challenges, bad experience. So right. to date we've gone through about, uh, it's, it's between 12 to 13 property management companies. We've been fired by some property management companies. Wow. Um, to let go of some property management companies. And when you get fired by a property management company as a client, it's not when things are pink clouds and butterflies and the deal is performing at its 
best, right? It's, it's when you need them the most and, you know, there's challenges in that deal. So through talking to other successful investors too, learning from those successful investors, put together a questionnaire that we use to interview property management companies. And I think it would be very helpful for anyone that's doing single family or, or multifamily. Uh, it's about a hundred questions and it takes the management company a lot of time to answer it. That in itself is a good dis- determining factor because if a management company is not willing to answer it, you could tell that they're probably not serious about managing the property. Wow. Uh, so I, th- I think it would be a good way to just filter out the, the good from the bad and, uh, and help people have a better investing experience. So you hit it on the head again. I, uh, I was going to say that, you know, just beware that if you got a hundred questions and you're, you only have one property, the property manager is more than likely going to look at you like you're crazy and walk away. <laughs> but um, Sep put together a really long in-depth questionnaire because he's doing, you know, 80 deals, 80 units at a time. He's buying 80 houses at a time or 50 houses at a time. And, you know, a hundred questions on 80 houses is a very important due diligence step. That's a very important thing. Logistically, on an 80, 80 single family portfolio, it can be very uh, time consuming and it can be very, very difficult. So that's, it's really important to distinguish between whether or not you're just doing one home and you're doing 80 like SEP is. Um, and then you had one more thing, right? Yeah, and if anyone wants that too, we have a, a standard renovation and procedures manual that we use for our our renovations. So a lot of the deals we do are value add. It's, it's basically the do's and don'ts that we share with our contractors and our property managers and construction managers to give them an idea as far as what we want the property to look like. Cause a lot of properties we buy are broken and we have to give them the vision. And that includes specifying the exact material, the, the finish, the, the design of it uh, so that it's all consistent. Everyone follows the same process and we don't have deviation. Because if you say like install backsplash on this kitchen, a $5 backsplash is very different than a $15 backsplash. And, and one of them will make it look like it's 30 years old and the other one will make it look like it's on HGTV. So we have right. this, this manual with a lot of pictures and the links and uh, it could give the investors an idea, maybe something they could do themselves too, to be able to just help streamline and systematize their renovation process. Wow. Wow, so that's happy big. Share, yeah, either of those, just send me an email at sepapacommoninvest.com and I'll send them over to you. Sweet, man. I appreciate that. That is, uh, that's, really, that's really a really big deal. You know, if I had I had a manual that tell, told me how to, you know, systematize my business, my rental business in the beginning, I probably would be miles ahead. But you're here now. We're here now. You know, I think we all say that. So it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. But, um, uh, with all that being said, Sep, uh, go ahead and give us the one golden nugget that you want our audience to remember. If they don't remember anything else from this podcast, what's the one thing you want them to remember? Well, uh, the one thing that comes to mind is uh, something that Beth Clifford shared to me. She's a developer, a great speaker, and she says that even if you're an investor, if you're, if you're big, if you're small, you're just starting out, you are the CEO of your company. And there was a, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article that talked about the average Fortune 500 CEO reads 60 books a year. That's six zero. So I would just say that always be a student. You and I have met a lot of successful investors with thousands and thousands of of doors. We know them and and they're still reading books. Like they don't know everything. They're still curious. They're still wanting to see when's the next financial crisis going to happen or what what can I do to improve my business or uh, just personal development. So uh, just keep being a student, keep learning, keep asking questions, keep being curious. And I, I feel like that's where the fun is. Wow. 
Hit it on the head, man. You dropped so much wisdom on us today. If you all don't know, get to know him. Reach out to him through his all the available resources he provided us today. Check out his website. Really nice guy. Really knowledgeable, as you can tell. Uh, we want to say thank you again for uh, spending the time with us today. And uh, we look forward to the next one, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Justin Keisha. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Real Life Real Equity Podcast. If you would like to ask the hosts a question or be exposed to our podcast audience, visit our website at realliferealequity.com and submit a request. Again, that's realliferealequity.com or send us an email at info at realliferealequity.com. Again, that's info at realliferealequity.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week right here on Real Life Real Equity Podcast.